Well, as I've shared with you for many, many opportunities that I've had with you, I've shared about my father's salvation to Christ as he uh, left the Roman Catholic Church, um, being raised in that tradition growing up. And um, one of the things that has always stood out to me is the way that the Lord used different people and different resources as a means to disciple my father's faith in Christ. Um, One particular resource that my dad was able to really glean truth from as a young believer in Christ was uh, WCRV 640 AM, the radio station here in our city. He would broadcast, this radio station would broadcast uh, wonderful preachers of of the faith, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, Charles Stanley, who passed away this past week, um, and use this as a way for my dad to learn and grow in his faith um, outside of his uh, attendance in church. And it stood out to me because my dad spent a lot of time as an electrician in the car um, and then at the fire station, and he would constantly learn uh, from these men. Uh, when I was a teenager, I began to work with my dad, and one particular program that I remember that he listened to was the Bible Answer Man, Hank Hanegraaff. Now, I don't endorse Hank Hanegraaff like I used to because he has since turned to an Eastern Orthodox faith, but nonetheless, he was pivotal in the discipleship of my father and many Christians as they began to learn and understand the Bible, they had questions. And Hank Hanegraaff was one that allowed callers to call in and submit their questions. And Hank would go to God's Word um, very thoroughly and, uh, and he would answer those questions for these believers. And as I was thinking about that this week, I thought, you know, this is a great illustration for Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He's the better Bible answer man. He's trying to help them process as, as, their, uh, as an apostle to understand the truths of God's Word, in particular, and particularly the situations that they have encountered that they need answers to. And I, I have no doubt that even as an unbeliever, the Lord used the, the Bible Answer Man program to help me hear the gospel so that one day in the future, I would believe the gospel. And I'm very thankful for that. Um, and I know that Paul used this letter to the Corinthians, not just for the sake of the Corinthians, but for our sake. Not because we're sitting back going, yeah, I mean, really, what should we do about meat offered to idols? I mean, that's the, that's the burning question in my mind, Pastor, when I run into these, uh, this meat that's sold in the market. Well, of course that's not our question. But our question that is brought forth from this text has to do with the way in which we interact with other believers in regards to our liberty, in the regards to the freedom that we have in Christ, and the love that we should demonstrate to one another in regards to our walk in Christ, in holiness. And so that's kind of how we started last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, looking at this question of meat offered to idols. And in doing so, uh, Paul is responding to, uh, again, a concern of the Corinthians where he has corresponded back and forth. And as he's corresponding with them, he's, he's really picking up on a lack of love. And so last week we kind of looked at a lesson of love. We looked at the way in which there was an arrogance among the Corinthians because some of them had felt as if they had arrived at some higher knowledge that literally uh, it allowed them, it gave them liberty, they would think, to do what they wanted to do in the name of Jesus Christ. We call that today license to uh, in, instead of liberty. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit today. But if you'll look back in, in chapter 8 real quick, just notice kind of the, the summary statement that Paul makes at the end of chapter 1, or of verse 1, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. That's really the summary of this whole chapter. Is that we can uh, have this knowledge and we can have this understanding in Christ, wisdom that the Word of God gives us, 
But as Paul will continue to talk about throughout this, uh, this book, this letter to the Corinthians, if we don't have love, if we do not have gentleness and gracious compassion toward one another, it doesn't matter how much knowledge we have. And we must, as God's people, be committed to the idea that God has called us to demonstrate a love in the same way that Christ demonstrated a love toward us. And so regardless of our knowledge, we must have and put on love that edifies one another. And we looked at edification. The process in which God's people are continually building each other up. We are continually working to encourage and strengthen and and support and undergird the faith of each other. And let me be honest with you. This is exactly why you need to be here today. And I need to be here today. That our faith in Christ is not a solo experience. You come to faith in Christ one-on-one and He places you in a family. A family that you're not called to just frequent every so often like Thanksgiving dinner. That this is an opportunity for you to live life together as God's people growing together so that the Spirit of God sanctifies you in a greater way in community than He ever would by, by yourself. You need the church. You need God's people. And that is why we must put on love and why we must display unity, a love that Jesus has demonstrated for us. And so we looked at last week a lesson of love, and today we're going to look at two more lessons. Number two of our, of our uh, study today, one being a lesson of love, two being a lesson on maturity. And so from verses 4 through 8, we're going to look at a lesson on maturity, which is really the, the idea of knowledge. Paul now visits again the great concern that these people in Corinth had. So he draws us back into the issue with his words in verse 4. Now therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols. There he is drawing us back to the question that was asked. He starts that way in chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, and then he kind of steps to the side with a little soapbox on love instead of arrogance, humility instead of a pride. And now he draws us back in verse 4. Now concerning the things sacrificed to idols. Now again, if you write in your Bibles you might circle the words next to that or following that, we know. Because that is a, um, a way in which Paul is signifying or identifying that what follows the words we know will be quotes that the, from the correspondence that Paul has received. Okay, for example, look back in verse 1. Now concerning the things sacrificed to idols, we know that what? We all have knowledge. That was what the Corinthians were saying. Paul is direct quoting from them. There's no quotations in the Greek language. So this is why we have to do a little investigation. Now into verse 4. Concerning the things eating, uh, things sacrificed to idols, we know what? Quote, that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. Both of those statements, it's believed, are direct quotations from the Corinthians that Paul is now addressing. This is a, a, a clear understanding of how the Corinthians believed and what they were arguing in regards to their liberty. Now, we can say from the very beginning, these statements are not incorrect statements. Okay? These are, are beautiful, clear statements about our freedom in Christ. That in our liberty, we can understand with the knowledge that the Holy Spirit has given us through the Word, that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, that there is only one God. I mean, this is the truth of our Christian faith. We are what we would consider, as I mentioned last week, we are monotheists. We believe in God being the one true God. And of course, this is standing apart from the culture of Corinth, which were polytheism. 
These polytheists were believing in the, 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 the reality of multiple gods, this pantheon of gods that required the worship of the people, and in return, the worship of those people, uh, from those people would provide blessings in different areas of their lives. And Paul is laying that forth, answering this question, because these Christians in Corinth had left polytheism, and they are standing firm on this belief of the one true God. This is an exclusive belief. And so we, as believers... We believe in a maturity of our faith also with the Corinthians that God is one God. This is, is, is so pivotal to our understanding of truth in the, the Word of God as, as the way in which God has revealed Himself that He is the one true God. He does not share His glory with any other deity or being that exists. He has existed as one God in three persons in eternity past before all creation was ever created. He was completely independent. He was completely transcendent in His existence before He chose to make the first atom, the first molecule, the chunk of dirt, human tissue, or the glorious redwood tree. God is the God, the only true God. A.W. Pink writes it this way, that before... The phrase, in the beginning, Pink says, there was no heaven where His glory is now particularly manifested. There was no earth to engage His attention. There was no angels to hymn His praises. No universe to be upheld by the word of His power. There was nothing, no one but God. And that not for a day, a year, or an age, but from everlasting... And this eternal God, during eternity past, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, and in need of nothing, end quote. This is the God that we worship. We don't, as human beings, believe that God was lonely up in heaven, that He needed us, that His life would not have been complete if He didn't create the world and everything in it. This is human arrogance when we believe such things about God. God needs nothing. He needs nothing from us. and He needed nothing in the past. He needs nothing in the future. And yet He chooses to love us. Not because we add anything to God. Our prayers, our attention, our worship, it doesn't empower God. It doesn't give Him a greater glory. His glory is manifested through all of His own self, His own being. He just chooses to manifest it on the earth. In certain ways. And so the the idea of God as the one true God was made clear throughout all of the Bible. It's the foundation of what we understand about God's being. He tells the Israelites in Exodus chapter 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall, make yourself, you shall not make yourself an idol or any likeness which is what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. What was, what was the Lord trying to teach Israel? That He was the one true God, that He deserved all the worship and praise. Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is what? Multiple gods? No, the Lord is one. And the, and the fact that, that Israel would repeat this over and over again was the very foundation of their separation between the rest of the nations. Because the pagan nations around them were all worshiping multiple gods. And in the idea of our culture today, it is so very prevalent for us in, an, in the exclusivity of the gospel to believe and hold fast to a monotheistic idea of God because if we believe that other gods exist, then we must then believe that they deserve our worship or portions of our worship as well. I mean, if these are gods, then why should we focus on just the God of the Bible and ignore all the other gods? What will they do to us? 
This is the very argument that Paul makes in Acts chapter 17 when he goes to declare that the unknown God that they were trying to worship out of fear of his own wrath was literally the one true God that they needed to worship, the one true God of of the Bible of Israel. And so monotheism is the foundation of what we believe. And why is Paul teaching this then? Why is Paul referring to this? Because he wants them to be affirmed in their maturity. That when we talk about God, we talk about Him as singular. But yet, as we talk about the idea of of His monotheistic being, we also talk about Him as in in His personhood. And so here in Acts chapter 8, Paul gives a beautiful um, educational lesson on the personhood of God. That yes, God exists as one God, and yet in three persons. And two of those persons here are mentioned in verse 5. He says, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, and the the Father from from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. Now, why does Paul mention this? Well, one, because he is trying to affirm their belief in one God. But he is also trying to teach them this Trinitarian truth about the Father and the Son so that they might so act in a way that brings God glory in all three persons of the Trinity. In other words, if they are so puffed up in their knowledge, if they are so arrogant in their knowledge, then they are displaying an ignorance of the Trinity because they are not displaying the love that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, so displayed for them. In other words, they're showing ignorance about God's personhood because they are not reflecting the love of Christ. And so he is educating them. He's not just reminding us that God is is a trinity, that he is one God in three persons, but he's literally applying that to the very situation that they need to understand. Look again at verse 6. There is one God, the Father. The Father is from whom are all things. He is the source of our existence. And not only is He the source of our existence, but we exist for Him. You talk about an an important preposition in the Bible. That we exist for God. God does not exist for us. We exist to bring Him glory. Everything that we do, every breath of air that we take is to be attributed to and for the purpose of God's purposes and God's glory. And most particular, Paul is telling us that we in our existence are from the Father. He is the source of our existence. And then one Lord, he says, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, by whom are all things and we exist through Him. The Father being the creator of all things, we existing for Him. The Son being the agent of creation, we are in existence through Him. Now we would add that God in His totality brought forth all things. Father, Son, and Spirit working in unity to bring about creation. Father, Son, and Spirit working in unity to bring about salvation. Father, Son, and Spirit in unity, bringing about the consummation. All of God's history, with the distinctiveness of the person of Father, Son, and Spirit, having different roles and responsibilities, are all working in unity to bring about the purposes of God. So therefore, in this belief then that God is one, Paul wants them to understand and affirm also the denial that other gods exist. And so he says in, at the beginning, at the end of verse 4, there is no such thing as an idol in the world. 
Verse 5, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Here Paul is saying, look, I agree with you. I believe in, in this monotheistic view of God. But there are people in the world that although the reality of their false god is not true, the reality of their faith in that false god is true. In other words, everyone in the world has real faith in something. Everyone in the world has a genuine faith in something even if it doesn't exist. You people out there that are looking for UFOs have a genuine uh, interest and belief that flying saucers are flying around the earth and you can't wait for that to be discovered. That is a genuine belief. You've got your tinfoil hat on and nobody's going to take it off. The belief of many gods was a real belief. And that's important for our argument for Paul as he begins to talk about the charity and the love that we have for our fellow believers in Christ. Why? Because these so-called gods are not in existence real gods. Later on in chapter 10, he will actually be very specific that false gods are actually demons. In chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians... He helps us understand that the reality of false gods in this world is actually the practice of evil and demonic power in this earth. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20. We'll get to that in a couple years. He says, No, but I say these things that the Gentiles sacrifice. That which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Well, this was not original to Paul. Paul did not believe that false gods of the world, the little g-gods as we call them, this was a, 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 a belief of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17 through 21, we read from the book of, books of Moses, in Deuteronomy 32, it tells us, The Lord telling, they sacrificed to demons who were not of God. To gods whom they had not known. New gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you, he says, and forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom there is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. uh, Moses is talking in, in Deuteronomy here. He's describing for us the the words of the Lord, telling us that those who practice the worship of pagan idolatry, worshiping false gods, are sacrificing to the work of demons. And those demons, by the way, are not God, he said. So therefore you have a statement of monotheism and an acknowledgement that all the other religions of the world are the work of demons. Satan himself conjuring up false belief. Why? Because it takes away from the glory of the one true God. And any time that we uh, participate in such things, we are participating in the evil of this world. This is why, church, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells us our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers, against the world forces of this dark darkness, against the force, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. We are at spiritual war. And with the Corinthians, they needed to understand that the very act of worshiping false gods was an act of worshiping demons. And so in understanding this, Paul is giving them a lesson of their own need. Teaching them 
of true faith in Christ and true, a, a, a greater knowledge of a greater maturity in their belief. So he's laying forth the dividing line of what is, is needed to be understood about faith in Christ. God being one God in many persons, the purpose and the, the function of those persons, most particularly in chapter 8, the work of the Father and the work of the Son. And as we exist through Christ, as we uh, exist to, to praise and, and honor and glorify Him, we are filled with this knowledge. But look at verse 7. Not all men have this knowledge. So what Paul is doing is he's now saying, okay, so here's the reality of these doctrinal truths, but not all of your brothers have this knowledge. When he says men here, he's talking about in the church. And he uses words particularly that refer to the maturity of of God's people and the weakness of that maturity, the immaturity in some. And so we have to understand the reality of that. In the church, there are always more people, there are some that are mature, and there are some that are immature. And there will always be. There will always be people growing in Christ at different rates, at different speeds. And there will always be, with the salvation of new believers, more weak people growing and more uh, stronger people growing, always in a process of being perfected until our day with Christ. There is always this process of maturity happening. And this is so prevalent for us as as a church, because when we consider the reality of the weakness, then we will know how to love one another. That's the whole point. Instead of boasting in our knowledge, understanding and grabbing hold of the reality of weakness in some helps us understand and love them well. It helps us understand how to care for them. So Paul acknowledges that knowledge is limited in all of us. Some are more weaker than others. As Paul says, in most particular terms, that some were weak. Why? Because they were accustomed to the idol until now. And they eat the food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. They're wrestling with their old lives. This is what Paul is describing. Before Christ, these Gentiles, believing in many gods, came to understand in their faith in Christ and the knowledge of God that He exists in one God, one being. And yet, when they go to the market and they find this meat that they believed at one part had the presence of many gods as a part of this meat, they struggle. Why? Because they're weak in their faith. Even as Christians... Even with this knowledge that God is one God, they struggle with the idea that this meat was contaminated, that they shouldn't eat such a thing. And in their weakness, their conscience were being defiled, and therefore Paul makes that clear to these Corinthians. Which is why in verse 8 he says, Food will not commend us to God. We're neither the worse if we do eat, nor better if we do not. Why? Because it's not about the food. It's about our understanding, our knowledge, our maturity. And so an understanding maturity in the the community of believers, we are then challenged to ask ourselves, what are we going to do about this issue of maturity? If there are some in our churches that are weak and some that are more mature, How are we going to respond to that difference? And the answer Paul has already told us, number one, is love. That we have to respond in seeking to build each other up. But I think secondly, secondly is helping one another in discipleship. If we are to truly love someone, we are not happy with or accepting of their immaturity. Right? I mean, think about how that physically plays out in your home. 
Are you wanting to live, your kids to live with you the rest of your life? 45-year-old, can't brush his teeth, doesn't pick up his clothes. No, of course not. You're not accepting of immaturity in that child. You're teaching them the disciplines and the responsibilities so that one day they can grow up and function on their own. So in the church, it should be no different. We cannot be accepting of people being okay with spiritual immaturity. We must always motivate and participate in the spiritual growth of one another. We have to. It's what God's called us to do. For example, in Titus chapter 2, Paul tells us to participate with a heart of discipleship in the function of the church. Titus chapter 2, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith and love and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Why? So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of the Lord will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the men to be sensible. So here you have two commands to teach. Younger women are taught by older women. And Paul is telling Titus to be one who teaches the men to display holiness and be sensible in in all the aspects of Christian faith that are demonstrated there. Well, that's not just by the way we live, but teach them with words. Paul is describing a sense of discipleship that's needed in the church. Leading and guiding one another, growing together, not being accepting of spiritual immaturity, but always striving to learn and to grow in our weaknesses. So I don't know where you see yourself as fitting in. These aren't really polarizing categories. They are, it's, it's definitely a timeline of our faith. We are always weak in certain areas. We are always needing to grow. I hope none of us sit around and be like, I'm so mature. But there are things that you understand about the Bible at a higher level than other people. And without an arrogant heart, but a gracious heart, say, I would love to help people understand this. For example, shameless plug, Pastor Adam wants to teach people how to be biblical counselors. He doesn't want to just counsel himself. He doesn't just see the need for him to spend time one-on-one with counselees so that they can uh, have the Word of God applied to their lives. He wants you to learn how to do it. Because a world full of people equipped to biblically counsel is a better world. It's a better church. And so he wants to learn, and he has learned as of today. Two hours left. Sign up for, he's got two hours of counseling sessions left to get his diploma. But he wants to teach you how to do it. So that you can grow. And guess what he wants you to do with that, that knowledge that he may teach you? Teach other people. That's what discipleship is. Constantly passing on what we've learned so people can grow. So we have, about, we have this lesson on maturity. Had the lesson on love. And now finally a lesson on liberty. Liberty. In this third lesson, Paul is teaching about Christian liberty. With our knowledge and our maturity in Christ, Paul now needs to say, look, what does this have to do with our liberty? These believers understood that meat offered to idol was not a danger to them. They were free because Christ has saved them and because Christ has revealed to them that that meat was not only gluten-free, it was demon-free. And so they could go to the market and they could get their food and they could eat it without any problem because it was just meat. Meat does not commend us to God. We're not worse whether we eat it or not. But Paul says, but wait, there's an issue of liberty. Because see, it's not just about what you know, it's about what other people don't know. And so as we wrestle with this idea of Christian liberty, 
How does the Christian live a holy life reflecting the glory of God in a world full of sin? Well, we're free to live. Christ has set us free. And the Bible tells us that if Christ has set us free, we're free indeed. But liberty is actually not pure, absolute freedom. Christian liberty is not pure freedom because our liberty is in Christ. So our liberty is only about how Christ wants us to live. We are free under His rule, under His authority. And the Bible oftentimes gives us very specific, clear answers to our questions about what and how can the Christian live in this world, in holiness. But oftentimes, there's not clear, distinct answers. And so I want to propose to you a couple questions. Questions that you can ask in making decisions in relationship to your liberty in Christ. As we wrestle with Christian liberty, we need to see that not every scenario that a Christian faced is is directly specified in Scripture. So here's some questions to ask. Number one, does the Bible speak directly or indirectly about this? What this means is that the Christian must investigate how the Bible would forbid or allow such a thing. And is that prohibition or allowance detailed? For example... The easiest example in our culture is drinking alcohol. Is alcohol forbidden in Scripture? No. But drunkenness is forbidden. So drunkenness reflects a lack of self-control, and our lives as believers are meant to reflect an authority and the control of God's Spirit in us. That's why the Bible talks about being drunk is as opposed to the Spirit of God living and dwelling in us. Therefore, drunkenness reflecting a lack of self-control means the Spirit of God is not in control of our lives. Therefore, we are in sin. The Bible speaks very clearly about that. But the Bible says that it's not... The Bible doesn't say that it's a sin to drink alcohol. And the Bible also speaks indirectly about things. For example, it could be a sin to drink alcohol if you are wasting all your family's money to buy that alcohol because you're not providing for your family. So that's an indirect way to address the same situation with the principles of God's Word. If you're wasting your money in addictions or you're wasting your money with fulfilling your pleasures instead of caring for the family that you've been given, the food that needs to be set on the table, the bills that need to be paid, then you are living in sin. And so that's a principle that could be applied in such a way. The Bible doesn't forbid you investing your money in stocks or bonds. Is that wrong? Well, there are are passages that, that, that explicitly mention financial activities if you are seeking to get rich quick. For example, Proverbs 28.20 talks about hastening to be rich. So it's a principle that if we are seeking to put our money in stocks and bonds so that we can get wealthy and buy whatever we want then we're living in sin because we're not trusting in the providence and providential grace and mercy of God. But stocks and bonds in themselves are not wrong. They're not a sin. So the first question then is, what does the Bible speak directly about or indirectly with spiritual principles that help us make decisions so that in the end, whatever we drink or whatever we eat or whatever we do, we do all for the glory of God? But there's a second question. Am I considering my Christian neighbor? This is Paul's, this is Paul's statement in verse 7 again. However, not all men have this knowledge, some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as though it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God, and neither are we the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do. So as we talked about, Paul is acknowledging that with our liberty, we must acknowledge the weakness of faith. That we as God's people are continually growing as we talked about. And in that growth, 
God is reprogramming our consciences. The conscience, as many people have described it, is the alarm system, the internal alarm system that the Lord has given each person. And that alarm system goes off when our ethics are offended. Before Christ, there are very few things that offend our ethics, even though the reality of the conscience proves that God writes His law on our hearts. Because most sane people would even be offended by rape and murder, even though they don't follow God. Well, why are they offended by that? Because the law of God was written on their hearts, and their consciences that God has given within them to alert them of such an offense is offending them when someone is murdered or raped or abused in certain ways. And that conscience, that pre-Christ, unconverted conscience still exists, but when Christ saves us, our hearts are transformed immediately, but our consciences are transformed and renewed over time. They're molded by God's Word. And so that the conscience is being educated by the Spirit of God. That's why the weak brother in this passage is still offended by the meat offered to idols because his conscience is still being changed. So that things that may not brought much conviction before now have a greater conviction. That's why Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the ruling of what? He doesn't say your heart because your heart is already transformed. But the renewing of your mind is the process in which the renewal of your conscience is still an ongoing thing so that you might understand the will of God, as Paul says. So that you may understand what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the transformation that we go through day by day as Christ is conforming us to Him, to His own image. Therefore, the new Christian undergoing the renewal of conscience will still struggle with the past vices and the past struggles. Their old ethics are being discarded. Their new ethics are being molded by the gospel. And we as Christians must be careful not to say something like, well, they should know better. Because knowledge comes in growth. And growth must come with love. And so Paul is commanding the church in Corinth to realize the very levels of maturity and to seek the love of the community so that there might be unity among the body and liberty expressed in considering the care of other people. That's why he says in verse 8-11, through take care that your liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, you who have knowledge, dining at an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. The Bible tells us that even in the church... Mature believers in Christ can be a stumbling block to the weak in Christ. Now, we don't don't really use the word stumbling block in today's language. But ultimately, it's something in a field where you're running through the field and there's a large stone that you don't see and you trip and you fall over it. It would equate to today's language when you're walking through your den and you step on a Lego. Yep, you know what I'm talking about. You step on that Lego... And whatever you are going to accomplish has now changed. Your direction, your attitude, your speed, everything changes when you step on that Lego. And a stumbling block in the Christian faith is being redirected from the path in which you are traveling because of another brother or sister in Christ who chose liberty over love. And the point is, is that you can't control how long the conscience of other believers takes to learn and grow. That's the work of the Spirit to do. So our role instead is to display a love that looks out for the weakness of our brothers and sisters to show them extra care as they grow spiritually in Christ. 
We cut up our food for our children because the sharp knife and the large chunks of food that they can consume are both a danger to them. So what do we do? We make it easy. We take the extra steps to make sure they are safe. And the stumbling block in the Christian faith in response to this situation with Paul and the the Corinthians is that the weak brother seeing someone who is new in Christ eating the meat from the market or at the the idol's temple even. That's kind of the, 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 the hyperbole there. No Christian would have gone to a, a, a idol's temple. But they could have participated in these social feasts. These social feasts that were centered around pagan worship. And for Christians to be there was reflective of an old life that we Christians would have gone, what is he doing here? Why is he there eating that meat? Why is he there at that festival? That festival about, is about Diana and all the, the, the worship of this false god. What, is it, what are they doing there? It doesn't reflect Christ. It doesn't reflect our belief in one true God. Is He worshiping? What's going on? Paul says that their conscience, being weak, might even be strengthened to eat the sacrificed food or the food sacrificed to idols. In other words, he doesn't mean strengthened in a positive way. He means strengthened to re uh, to return back to believing in these false pagan beliefs. And it will ruin them. So this is where Paul lays it out for Christians. 12 and 13 is the climax of this. He says, So by sinning against the brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. If we fail to look out for the weakness of our brothers and express our liberty in such a way that it might cause other people to stumble, Paul says you are sinning against the Lord Himself because you are attacking the body. Because He is the head of Christ, it doesn't matter your liberty in Him because you're not putting on the love of Christ. So your liberty means nothing if you are not displaying the love of Christ that seeks the interests of others more important than themselves. Therefore, freedom in Christ is not a license to do whatever we want, but to do what Christ desires, for He is our liberator from sin and death, but He is also the display of sacrificial love that loves others more important than us. So Paul concludes with love and liberty applied. The greatest expression of love by any follower of Christ is a love that's seasoned with sacrifice. Husbands sacrifice for their wives in love. Parents sacrifice for their children in love. Pastors sacrifice for their sheep in love. Brothers and sisters in Christ sacrifice for each other in love. Paul states that he would refrain from ever eating meat again instead of offending his brother. That is a huge statement. Now, an American saying that would be even a greater statement. Because Paul didn't eat the meat in that day and time like we do. But the abstinence reveals the conviction of Paul that loving my brother and sister is more important than the indulgence in anything that might cause them to fall or fail. So let me close with a personal illustration. I grew up... I'm glad my wife's not in here tonight, by the way. Don't tell her I said this, okay? I grew up on gluten-filled food. I don't have a gluten allergy. My son doesn't have a gluten allergy. But everybody else in my family does not eat gluten anymore. And I'm going to tell you all, this is hard for me. Okay? I love gluten. All right? Every good American loves gluten. And you you have to consider, as a father, the love of your children. Right? You have to consider, as a father, the love of your wife. How much do you love them? How much do you care for them? So many years ago, we decided to to start taking gluten out of our diets. 
Me, not as much as my wife. And you come to this rub, right? You come to this conflict because you're convinced that you need it. And you definitely love it. Who doesn't love donuts? Amen? Some of y'all are like, literally, some of y'all that have left gluten are literally salivating right now. I, I I can hear it. And you have to ask yourself, is it a display of love to make a big deal about taking gluten out of your diet if, you, if, if it's a danger to your children? So much so now that, that one of my children, like if, if any gluten touches their food, uh, on the fork or the, the baking pan, it could cause them to be very sick. And so it's like, it's more serious in our family than it's ever been, okay? And so the quote is, that as I'm still growing, I'm more concerned out of love for the care of my children and my wife than I am about eating donuts. And so if I have to give up gluten, don't quote me on this. And y'all pray for me really hard. It's worth it, right? That's love. Like, that's love. And so why in the world would we take such great steps to protect people physically and not do that to protect people spiritually. That's what we're called to do in love. To seek the interests of others spiritually and physically more than we would ourselves. This is the kind of love that the Lord has demonstrated for us in giving His life upon the cross, being the one who bore the sin, who knew no sin, so that we might put on the righteousness of Christ. That he did this for his own enemies, those who had been guilty of treason against the Lord. And the Lord said, I will save you and draw you to myself and bring you into my family and call you my friends. That's the love that God has displayed for us. He's modeled it for us. Let us go forth in the freedom that we have to love others in that way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the sacrifice that your son has made so that we could be free. We were all in bondage to sin 